Our scripture reading for today is Mark 11, verses 11 through 25. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Lord be with you. Uh, before I begin, I just want to just remind you that uh, we begin our Lenten FGs today, so uh, I want to encourage everyone to uh, stick around after the service for the next uh, six weeks uh, as we will uh, share uh, lunch together and then afterwards gather for a time of uh, fellowship and uh, Bible study. So I hope that uh, everyone can stick around and uh, spend the season, um, just a little extra time uh, being with one another. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we are uh, mindful that we have now entered into the season of Lent. And so help us in this time of self-reflection and penitence to come to you seeking your face. Help us to be honest with ourselves and to seek what you would have for us. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, you know, most years, um, at the end of the season of Lent, uh, you might hear a sermon about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and then one week later on Easter Sunday, you hear about the resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, between Palm Sunday and uh, Easter Sunday, 
a lot of stuff happened, but typically we don't hear a lot because we go from one Sunday to the next. And if you actually miss the Good Friday service in that week, you might not even hear about the crucifixion the entire year. I mean, that's, that's actually quite possible. Um, the gospel writers, however, they thought that the last week of Jesus' life was extremely important and proportionately very important. And so they will spend an, a lot of extra space just on the last few days of Jesus' life. The Gospel of Matthew, for example, Jesus enters Jerusalem in chapter 21 out of 28 chapters. In Mark, as you just heard, is chapter 11 out of 16. In Luke, is chapter 21 out of 24. And then in John, is chapter 12 out of 21. So again, very rough math. Roughly one-third or 35% of the Gospels are about just the last week of Jesus' life. And so it seems to me that we probably ought to spend a little more time thinking about the last week uh, of his life. And so at least this Lenten season, uh, I thought we would uh, consider each of the days between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday in the season of Lent. So for the next six days, next six Sundays, I want to look at each of the six days between those two Sundays. Um, and we're going to use the Gospel of Mark as our primary guide, as well as church tradition, because it's not always clear what happened on which day. But Mark is really good because he gives us all these time markers so we can kind of follow along uh, which day uh, and what happened. So our reading, for example, today begins with the end of Palm Sunday. Jesus has already entered into Jerusalem to wide acclaim in what's known as the triumphal entry. And then as you just heard, Jesus went into the temple and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the 12. It's like he was on a reconnaissance mission. He was thinking about doing something that day, but then he saw it was kind of late. So he decided, let's just go home. Let's get some rest. And he's going to do whatever he was maybe thinking about doing the next day. And so traditionally, what's known as Holy Monday, Jesus returns to the temple. On his way, however, he must have skipped breakfast because he's hungry. And when he sees a fig tree, he wants to see if there's any fruit, even though we are told it was not the season for figs. Then, in what seems like a childish fit of anger, Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you ever again. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Just like last week, remember last week, Jesus told a desperate mother seeking help for her daughter. Remember what he said to her? He said, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs, right? Jesus does not come off looking great here. Looks like he's just, just hangry, right? In fact, uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, perhaps the, the most famous, uh, well-known atheist uh, of the 20th century, he wrote an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in it, he mentions this incident as one of the reasons for his rejection of Jesus and Christianity. He writes, this is a very curious story because it is not the right time of year for figs and you really could not blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Right? That seems like a reasonable Summary of what's going on. So maybe Jesus is still hangry because he goes to the temple and now he just kind of lashes out. 
He begins to drive out those who are selling, those who are buying, and he overturns the tables of the money changers, the seats of the dove sellers, and he would not allow anyone to even you know, walk through uh, the temple areas. His actions are quite surprising here if you think about it because Jesus has been going to the temple very regularly throughout his life. We know, you know, his, his parents were, uh, took him when he was born. They took him when he was 12. And we know from the Gospel of John that at least three times as an adult, he went in the season of Passover. So we know that Jesus was at temple very regularly. He must have seen things that were problematic on those visits, right? It's not like the first time he's seeing uh, the, the selling that's going on. So why is it that in this particular day that he creates this bit of chaos and havoc on the temple grounds. Let me remind you first, uh, real quick, about the temple a little bit. The temple was a massive, massive, and beautiful, beautiful building. Uh, built originally by King Solomon. Uh, it was um, um, destroyed and then rebuilt by uh, King Herod um, over many, many decades. And Rabbi said that the temple was, quote, the capstone that prevents the abyss from rising again to inundate the world and undo the work of creation. I mean, the temple was this just incredible, incredible building. The temple itself and the altar for the sacrifices, that, just that alone took up uh, the equivalent of a modern uh, football uh, field with all the sidelines. So just imagine like a football field, that that's the size of the temple and where the altar is located. The temple itself though, uh, the, the, the larger part of it, it sat on 35 acres. And there were these outer uh, courts called the, the Court of the Gentiles, uh, which took up about two thirds of that space. And then there was an inner court for uh, women, the Court of the Women. And then there was the inner court where only Jewish men were allowed to go. And then in the very, very center was the, the temple, the, the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could then enter uh, once a year. So the temple, this, this, it's, just, it's just a massive, massive structure uh, that dominated the uh, landscape of Jerusalem. And it was not just the center of religious worship. As you might imagine, because it was so massive, it was an economic juggernaut. Right? It was the hub for social, commercial, and economic activity. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of kind of like Rutgers University, right? The, the school is here. <clears throat> its purpose is to, to teach and to educate. <coughs> but because the campus is so massive, it has, an, it has an incredible impact on the economy and the social life of the entire city, right? It can't help it because of its just sheer size. So likewise, the temple had that kind of influence uh, in Jerusalem and even more. <clears throat> and just to give you some scale, according to Josephus, during the Passover in the year 66, uh, 255,600 lambs were slaughtered. Just imagine, a quarter million lambs were slaughtered during the season of Passover. There was so much blood that they had to create a channel with holes through the temple walls so that the blood could just flow into the Kidron Valley where it was collected and then sold later as fertilizer. So you can just imagine just, just the scale in which the temple uh, is operating. And so when people came to the, uh, to the temple to offer sacrifices for their sins, they had to offer an animal that had absolutely no blemish. You wanted to offer what was perfect to God. And so you can imagine 
people would be traveling for uh, miles, perhaps hundreds of miles, uh, and they would bring their, their, their sheep and lamb. And you can imagine that en route, sometimes, you know, I don't know anything about animals, but maybe they fall, they get a blemish, they get hurt, and now you can't use that, and so you got to get some other lamb. And so uh, many people began to, instead of bringing their own sheep and lambs and other animals, they would just come to Jerusalem and buy one, right? It was just easier, it, was more, it just made more sense. And then the other thing that male uh, Jewish men had to do was they had to pay an annual temple tax. Um, but because the, uh, the various coins uh, were not standardized, and because some of the coins, some of the Roman coins, would have a picture of Caesar on the coin, uh, some thought that this was uh, idolatrous and it was not appropriate to use uh, in the temple, you had to exchange your coins for the standard temple shekel. And that's what you would then offer as your uh, tax for the year. And so that's why these money sellers, these money exchangers, grew up uh, in town. So you have these two groups of people. You have the animal sellers and you have the money exchangers. It used to be, it used to be that all this activity took place on the Mount of Olives. The Sanhedrin had placed, you know, this is where you can do your business. It was outside the temple grounds. But at some point, to make it easier and make it more convenient for the pilgrims that were coming to worship, they moved all that business from the Mount of Olives across the street, so to speak, onto the temple grounds. And they were allowed to do that business in that part which was designated as the court of the Gentiles. So where the Gentiles would gather to worship God, to approach God, that's where they were allowed to do the business. And according to some scholars, this shift, this policy change, happened during the reign of the high priest Caiaphas during Jesus' day. And so now you can imagine, right? So this is like, oh, this is the one space that was allowed for Gentiles to worship God has now been taken away to carry on this business so that others could worship more easily. So when Jesus overturns the tables and the chairs, and by way of explanation, Jesus says, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. It sounds like he's rebuking them for turning the area of the Gentiles into a place where they can no longer pray, right? That the house of prayer has been turned into something else. That all the nations, the place where God invited all the nations to come and pray, that that has been taken away. And it's become a den of thieves because presumably the uh, animal sellers and the money exchangers, they are going to just rob people because they know these people have no choice, right? You know, like when you go to the airport, you know you're going to pay extra for a, for, a cup of, uh, for a bottle of water because they know they can, right? Because you have no choice. So that's presumably what's happening. And if that's what Jesus is talking about, then there's nothing really much for us to do here because this is not news. This is not news. There were other rabbis, there were other prophets before and after Jesus who criticized the animal sellers and the money exchangers for their greed. I mean, that's a common theme running throughout the prophets. We all know, we all know that there are always people in every difficult situation who will take advantage of people because they know they can. I mean, that's just, that's just, that's just life, right? That's just life. We expect to pay extra when we're... We have no choice in a given situation. 
But there's something else going on here. There's something much deeper, much more deeper and fundamental that Jesus is pointing to that which we don't want to miss. Jesus here is quoting from two different prophets. And it's very easy to misunderstand what he's talking about. In the first half, Jesus says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? This is a direct quote from the prophet Isaiah. The court of Gentiles, again, was supposed to be a place where Gentiles come and worship. But by designating that, you know, it, it was supposed to allow them to worship. But by limiting them to that particular space, you see what they've done? They've, they've created a barrier. And now they've made it even worse because now that space you can't even use for prayer because it's too busy with all this business that is going on. The apparent push for convenience and profit have effectively barred the Gentiles from worship and approaching God. In the name of God, in the name of making worship easier for others, they have excluded the very people that God wanted to come and to worship. And Jesus says that is not what the house of God is supposed to be like. And so maybe the question that we always want to think about is, what are we doing that is preventing people from worshiping God? Now, the second part of what Jesus says is the part I think that is often misunderstood. Jesus says, but you have made it a den of robbers. And this comes from Jeremiah 7. Now, we usually understand that you have made this into a den of robbers as a description of those people, right? The people who are selling, the people who are exchanging, that they are the robbers, that they are there to rip people off, right? Presumably that's what they're doing. And that's the way we typically understand what Jesus means. But that is not probably what Jesus means. Because if we look at this passage from Jeremiah where Jesus gets this phrase, it's something quite different. Listen to what it says, what God says in Jeremiah. God says, amend your ways and your deeds. And I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, making offerings to Baal and go after other gods? And then come to stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered? only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? You see, it's very different. People thought that they could do whatever they want, steal, cheat, lie, and then they can just come to the temple and say, hey, this is the temple, this is the temple. I bring a sheep and I'm forgiven. That's what was going on. The, temp the temple leadership, that's essentially what they were buying. A den of thieves doesn't mean that this is a group of corrupt business people. It means that they are using the temple as a haven, as a sanctuary for false assurance. They were offering a false get-out-of-hell card for a fee. That's what is being criticized in Jeremiah. And that's the reference that I think Jesus is making here. It reminds me a lot of what um, Martin Luther railed against in the 16th century. While it's not quite true, uh, people thought that the Roman Catholic Church was essentially teaching the forgiveness of sins as a financial transaction. For the right sum, any sin could be forgiven. And that's what's going on here. 
that's what Jesus sees in the temple. Jesus isn't simply saying that, you know, you guys are being corrupt in your business dealings because you're ripping off people who have come here to worship. Maybe that is happening. He's saying that the entire system is corrupt. The entire system of sacrifices, of offerings, this this false notion of uh, assurance and forgiveness that this can happen as long as you bring this right animal or bring the right coin. That somehow this, this act of offering something can bring forgiveness or a right relationship with God. And Jesus says that is not what this is about. So Jesus is not saying here, hey, don't sell cookies or t-shirts as a mission fundraiser at church. That is not what he's saying. It's not, you know, the the so-called dirtiness of money that he is railing against here. He's not concerned about a sheep having a possible bruise and being used as an animal sacrifice. He's concerned about the way in which relationship with God has been turned into a manageable transaction where God is reduced to a religious exchange. Two pigeons for this sin, a lamb for a worse sin, and maybe an ox for a really grave sin. And Jesus says, no, that's, that's, I know it's a cliche, but it's not about religious activity. It's about a relationship that Jesus is pointing to here. The worship of God had become a financial transaction as if forgiveness could be bought with a couple of doves. Jesus wants us to see that faith is a radical thing, not some religious activity to be carried out once every year. Faith is not the routine sacrifice of a few pigeons. It's not about tossing in a few pennies or reciting a prayer or singing a couple of songs. It is not about showing up at Passover once a year or coming to church once a month. I think, you know, when I think about this, uh, this, um, this passage uh, this week, I, I think this is a particularly relevant warning uh, for our age. I really do. Because we, especially in this country, uh, we bring our consumer mentality to bear on everything, including our worship of God. Our fundamental orientation is that for the right amount of coinage, we can get whatever we want, right? It's telling, for example, um, it's always telling to me that whenever people uh, visit a church, not always, but whenever people, often when people visit a church or, or students come and they visit the church and, they, and you ask, oh, welcome and, and so on, and you greet them, and, and then you ask them, like, why are you here? How did you come here? And the, the language that is used, right, what do they say? They say, I'm shopping for church. Right? No one ever says, I'm looking for a place to serve. <laughs> they come, I'm, I'm shopping for church. Right? That, that language betrays our disposition. People shop for a church like they're shopping for a new pair of sneakers. They demand that churches be comfortable and trendy and fit their lifestyle. They want churches to make them feel welcome, to have good programs for them and for their kids. They want a good parking lot. And then they would choose the one that best caters to their needs. As long as you meet my needs, I will attend when it's convenient for me or until I find something even more convenient. As a result, churches have responded by leaning toward interest-focused programming and entertaining the crowds to survive and to compete for what they perceive to be a limited number of church shoppers. And perhaps it's only fitting that, like shopping, church shopping has increasingly moved online to virtual worship 
which is even more convenient. Now, I don't know if this is a thing anymore, but for a while, I remember uh, the mega churches in this country were trying to build their churches essentially as a one-stop shopping mall, right? In, in, the, in, the, in ancient times, people built the church uh, in the shape of a cross, right? But now churches, the architecture of the churches in America were basically that of a mall. Um, the Brentwood Baptist Church in Houston, for example, they opened the McDonald's on their church grounds a couple of decades ago. Other churches, they've built bookstores, housing developments, hotels, convention centers, skating parks, water slide parks, gym membership. I read about one church that has 16 full-size basketball courts on their premises. State-of-the-art athletic facilities to which you can buy gym membership. Coffee shops, climbing walls, video arcades. And one church I read about has a man-made lake that they filled with fish so that father and sons could do bass fishing as time, you know, to bond. Now, I'm not saying any of this is necessarily wrong, right? But the church, the body of Christ, cannot be just another commercially driven enterprise. It, that, it, that is not, that cannot be who we are. And notice here that Jesus isn't just attacking those people who are selling and making a profit. He began to drive out the sellers and the buyers. Everyone. He condemns everyone who is participating in the false security offered by this transactional religious activity. And notice Jesus only began to do it because he knew that there's no way he could drive out everyone. His actions here were really just symbolic in one small part of the temple grounds. And this is where the story of the fig tree comes in. You might remember that Mark likes to make these um, literary sandwiches, right? He'll, he'll start telling one story, and then he'll interrupt himself to tell another story, and then he'll finish the second story. And the reason he does is, is these, the two stories are supposed to help interpret each other, and that's what's going on here. The story of the fig tree and the story of the temple are supposed to explain uh, one another. The fig tree ordinarily bears fruit twice a year. Once in the early spring, and once the, the major harvest comes in the fall. And so because we know this is the Passover, this is the spring, probably you know, late March, early April, so it's probably about a month or so before you get the, the, the spring crop. But because there's leaves on the tree, you would expect them to, there to be at least some buds, some beginnings of fruit, and it's not there, right? And so some people think, well, maybe what Mark means is that the full harvest, is, it's not the season for that. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Because based on Jesus' actions in the temple, we can see that Jesus was not, he was not cursing, as Peter puts it, the tree for its lack of fruit. Mark tells us that it was not the season for figs precisely because he wants us to know that Jesus is doing this in a symbolic act. Right? They hear the word fig tree, it's, it's a symbol. You know, whenever you see trees, there are almost no trees in the Bible that don't serve as a symbol. Right? They know that this is something more is going on here. 
We get an additional clue here with the word season. It was not the season for figs. That word season is not the agricultural term for harvest or season. It's the word kairos. You know this word. It's the word meaning the, the right time, that, that special pregnant moment. It was not, it's a, it's a theological moment. That's what it's getting at here. Just as the fig tree with the green leaves showed promise that it should be healthy, it should be bearing fruit, but had no fruit. So the temple also, it looked so beautiful, it was so successful, but it's also unable to bear fruit, the fruit of righteousness. That's how they're being linked. Jesus saw that the tree had no potential for fruit and used it as a parable. He took that opportunity to use it as a parable to reinforce what he was about to do in the temple. Both will die. I know that this uh, story is often uh, referred to as the cleansing of the temple, but it's not. It's the closing of the temple. It's, it's, about, to, it's about to shut down. Jesus' words are going to be fulfilled the next day, Tuesday, when the withering of the fig tree affirms what Jesus has just done in the temple. That the judgment he has placed on the temple will come true. And both are a kind of lived-out parable, right? It's a way of helping people to remember uh, the teaching. This is what prophets always did, you know? Um, they, they, are, they live out in their own lives sometimes the, the, the judgments and the, and the words of God, right? So a uh, prophet like Isaiah, for example, uh, he had to spend three years preaching barefoot and possibly naked for three years in Jerusalem as a way of bringing judgment on the city. Ezekiel had to lie on his left side for over a year and then on his right side for 40 days as a way of living out God's judgment of the number of years and the number of days that the, the city and Israel would be judged. So this is a way of, of showing the judgment that is coming. This judgment, I know it's hard for us to kind of think about this now, but it would be just absolutely devastating to think that the temple would be no more, to think that this, this way of coming to God and approaching God for forgiveness, that that entire system is going to be just gone. It would have been unimaginable devastation for the people. The temple is where God kept his covenantal promise. This was the place where God was present with his people. So what's going to happen when that is gone? How will our sins now be forgiven? And Jesus offers these words then of assurance. He says, have faith in God. Pray. Forgive. He calls for faith, prayer, and for forgiveness. He promises that God will answer prayers and that sins will be forgiven when asked in faith. You don't need a temple. You don't need animal sacrifices for that. Because we know that the temple will be raised by the Romans a couple of decades uh, after Jesus' death and resurrection. But the promises, but the promises of the temple will remain. Because all that can be said about the temple, Jesus will now relocate within himself. And because the people of God are the body of Christ, Paul will say that we, the church of Jesus Christ, are the temple of God where the spirit of God now dwells. God is spirit, as Jesus will tell a Samaritan woman. 
She too was not welcomed. She had no place to worship on the temple grounds. But God is spirit, and those who worship must and can worship in spirit and in truth. I think we should be glad we don't have to make animal sacrifices. Hebrew 10 reminds us that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But it is possible because Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. The blood of animals was just a symbol of what was to come. What they symbolize is no longer necessary because Jesus has come and he will die once and for all for our sins. Now, I hope you will stick around because later you will hear during the Lenten FGs that those who know God know that God does not delight in sacrifices. Psalm 51 says, for you, will, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. The animal sacrifices were only a sign of that penitence. They were not a payment to gain God's favor. So no more animal sacrifices. No more religious uh, ritual as mere transaction. Instead, Jesus invites us to have faith in God, to pray with the confidence to move mountains. Not that, not that again, not that prayer is some superpower given to us to reshape our physical world, but that it is an invitation to trust God for what seems humanly impossible. We turn to our Father in heaven, not as whiny toddlers insisting on our own way, but trusting God in prayer that his will be done and that he is able to meet our real needs. As in heaven, so on earth. And we pray for giving others, not because we earn forgiveness through that, but as a sign of our own penitent hearts. As it has been said, we are just a company of forgiven forgivers. So have faith in God. Pray and forgive. Know that in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In Jesus Christ, you have been made right. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you will make for us on Good Friday. And God, for many of us, um, church has become just uh, perhaps just a, a routine thing that we just kind of do and perhaps we have drifted away from what it, what it means to really to know you, to seek you, to pray, God, help us to bring the sacrifice of a broken heart. To come to know you. To know that you desire all of our life and not mere tokens of our commitments. So God, help us, especially in this Lenten season, to really examine our hearts.
to really examine our hearts and to seek a renewal of our love for you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.